and that was probably the biggest tie, if you will, that a seven-year-old can have to pulling the lanyard on a, a 155-millimeter round, having the impact and the recoil, and maybe 30 seconds later hearing an explosion, or seeing it light up the sky late at night. It was a, a, a head rush for a seven-year-old. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Today we speak to Manuel Alzaga, who as a 17-year-old joined the US Army in 1981. Manuel signed up to the artillery and tells his story from a life of poverty in Los Angeles through to deployment in Germany for Reforger. Before we get going, you can really help us get more listeners by leaving reviews on iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps to raise our profile and get guests onto the show. If you'd like to support us with a few dollars, pounds or rubles, then head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. Thank you so much to all our fans that are supporting us. It is really appreciated. Now, back to today's episode, we start by talking about Manuel's early life. Manuel, can you can you tell me about your your early life and and how you ended up in the army in the first place? Sure, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, my parents were legal immigrants to the United States. My dad was basically a factory worker. My mom stayed at home, and we're basically pretty poor. And I was I wasn't the best student. Let me put it to you that way. I got in trouble. I just never went. And my last year of school, uh, I got held back. And one of my teachers said, you know, you better start thinking about what you want to do with your life. And at that time, my dad and I, we had a very bad, bad relationship. And I just wanted to get out. So this is 1981. And thank God I did graduate on time. But even before I graduated, I wanted to get out of Los Angeles. I wanted to get out and just, I don't know, I wanted to go somewhere else to get away from my family, to get away from the poverty. And there weren't too many jobs open out there. So I, I looked in the Army. That's the first thing I did because my family had a long tradition of going into the Army ever since you know Vietnam. So I did what was called the late entry program, whereas I, I took my tests, I took my physicals, in December of 1980, I was still in school, and I qualified for a bunch of things, but I didn't want to sit behind a desk, if you will. I remember telling the, the recruiter, well, I want to I be an army, you know, blowing stuff up. <laughs> so he said, well, uh, you scored pretty high in whatever test. How about artillery? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's a big guns, and you go out there, and it's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And again, keep in mind, I was 17. Yeah. The recruiter had to come to my house and get permission, legal permission, from my parents to sign me up. Because when 
my graduation was in June of 81 from high school. And then four weeks after, no, maybe about five weeks after that, I shipped out and went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And I was still 17 when I went to boot camp. So my parents begrudgingly signed, but I told them, you know, once I'm 18, I'm out of here anyways. Uh, So did you, did your dad serve in Vietnam? No, my dad was a Mexican immigrant. Right. Uh, you said there was a family grew- history of uh, of being right. in the military. My, uh, my cousins that all lived in California and Los Angeles and that area, they were here since maybe the 20s or 30s. And many of my uncles served in World War II in the Pacific. One of my uncles served in Okinawa. Uh, and then I had many uncles that, of course, served in Vietnam and I remember clearly one of them, his name was called Uncle Joe. He came back and he was just a mess. He drank a lot. And I didn't know at the time it was like PTSD and what the war was. I thought it was all fun because I was maybe six years old. But uh, I remember clearly my cousins coming back from Vietnam and just being messed up. But also the stories intrigued me. You know, that I guess if you call it the romanticism of war, which is maybe the wrong choice of words, but as a kid, I just found the military fascinating. I always have, I always had army toys, like GI Joes, always loved the military, even back then. And that comes from my relatives who already lived here. My dad, however, moved here in the fifties with my mom and then we were born, but we kind of had that support network already where, where we had family in Los Angeles and they, they helped us out and, to help find jobs, and so we had relationships, and that military interest came from that part of the family. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so your parents sign you uh, over. What happens? Yeah, then? basically. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they signed me over, and I graduated from high school barely. And about a month later, I got on an airplane for the first time in my life from LA International Airport. Flew to Dallas, and this was August 4th, 1981. I remember it clearly. And then I was supposed to board another plane to Lawton, Oklahoma. And I came from a big, it was like a DC-4, DC-10 airliner. And they put me on a little prop plane <laughs> of no air conditioning. I had to walk out of the tarmac. And I never felt this humidity in my life because I never left California until then. And I'm on a plane with like four other guys, long hair heading towards Lawton, Oklahoma, and that's where we went to boot camp at Fort Sill, and that was the summer of 81, and that's where my military career began, August 4th, 1981, boot camp. I was 17. Right, and how much of a shock to the system was boot camp from what you were used to? It was, in many ways, it was a big shock. In in some ways, I, I could handle it. The biggest shock was the the environment, the weather, the humidity, the fact that I was with all kinds of people from different cultures. Um, I'm Mexican-American, and I grew up in a pretty much Mexican-American community. So I was with African-Americans, with Orientals, with Caucasians. And, of course, uh, just getting up at 4 in the morning, all the yelling, all the, the no-excuse kind of attitude and part of the shock was my god i have to work for a living and i really didn't learn that out in the streets of la 
part of what helped me, though, is, um, and this sounds very ironic and maybe cynical in a way, but my dad and I, we had a very bad relationship, and he was physically abusive and mentally abusive. So when a drill sergeant came to me and started threatening me and belittling me and trying to push my buttons, it, that part really didn't faze me. The part that I struggled with was, of course, all the physical um, requirements, all the attention to detail, all the constant going, no work. And keep in mind, Ian, in 1981, they pretty much stopped uh, hitting trainees. They could do everything but hit you, is what I'm saying. Right. Uh, and they would make you stand there you know, with your rifle, an M16, which doesn't weigh a whole lot straight up, but if you hold it that way for 45 minutes, it, it feels like a, a ton of bricks. Uh, the fact that you didn't sleep much, and if you forgot your water, well, you know what? So sad. It was your problem. Uh, if you didn't fill up your canteens, it was on you. If, if you didn't check your boots and put powder in your socks, that was on you. If you forgot something, it was you, and you had to fix it. And that's what I learned. Cause and effect. You don't do something, you know, communicate it, you don't have a plan, chances are something's not going to work out. Uh, the physical part was was pretty easy for me for the most part because I used to paper ups walking and I used to put on like 40 pounds of newspapers and walk around the neighborhood. That's what I did when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So that, that part was, was okay. But the, the long marches, you know, and the, what my drill son called LPCs. We're going to go to the training or the rifle range on via LPCs. I'm like, oh, cool. We don't have to walk. Well, LPCs, as some people may or may not know this, they're referred to as leather personnel carriers, i.e. boots. <laughs> and, you know, 26 miles, oh, my God, that kind of with a 50-pound pack and full combat gear. That was rough. But it was also fun because as a 17-year-old, you know, I wanted to play Army. <laughs> and boot camp was 12 weeks back then for artillery. So I just remember making some lifelong friends and just the fact that I was 17 and I made it. And to me, that was a big badge of honor because, you know, they would say, well, you're just a 17-year-old blank, blank, blank. You're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> if you make it, you know, I'm going to laugh. That's another thing. Well, I'll show you. Plus, they fed us really good. I came from <laughs> East L.A. where I was just used to tortillas. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You know, tamales, all that good Mexican food. Mm -hmm. 
they started feeding us stuff I never even had in my life, like catfish and chili mac. And the army fed me really good. I, I have fun memories of that even to this day, you know. So I was 17. I was making money. I was blowing stuff up. After about the fourth week of boot camp, I loved it. You know, I thought I, I found a home. In fact, we had a cadence. We sing. And I don't know how it goes. I love, I like it here. I love it here. I finally found my home. Hey, you know, as you're marching. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's uh that was my start, my induction, if you will, to, to military life at 17. Wow. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine, uh, dealing with that at 17 and I'm sure a lot of 17 year olds nowadays can't, can't really imagine that, but it's still, you know, there's, uh, you know, people are still recruited at that at that age even though you know i i just find it surprising that you can be recruited at that age yet you're not old enough to vote in any election or anything like that yeah and that was the ironic part but again and this is just me i was i I really didn't think about this kind of things my whole thing was survival and getting out Mm. and wanting to be treated equally and i can tell you this ian in the army you were all treated equally. You were equally worthless unless you had to prove yourself. And uh, the thought of voting didn't even come to my attention. I mean, until later, I remember my 18th birthday, I was stationed in Fort Riley, Kansas. It's like, oh, I can vote now. So it was kind of backwards. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I never thought about that right and that privilege. Uh, for me, like I said, it was more survival. I just want to get out of L.A. I yeah. want to get out of my situation. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I can um, fully understand that from obviously, you know, what what you've described. So when you complete the the basic training, which I think you said was twelve weeks, yeah, and and then what happens then? You're you're still remaining in the U.S. Well, back then, the the thought of anybody going into military was not very popular. It was post Vietnam. And a lot of, I don't know about the Air Force, but the Army, they were offering bonuses for you to join up. I remember I got like a $3,000 bonus or something just for going artillery. And that's probably another reason why I did that. So when I graduated, even before I graduated, I knew I was going to go to boot camp. And even before boot camp ended, I already knew my duty assignment. Some guys didn't. Some guys had enlisted. And they weren't delayed entry program. They got assigned wherever. They had no idea. But when I was at the at the reception station at the start of boot camp, and they were issuing uniforms, some guys were getting patches sewn on their uniforms, and I was one of them. And they put the first infantry division patch on mine, and that's because I already been assigned to the Fort Riley, Kansas, first infantry division. Uh, so I knew where I was going after graduation, and a lot of people who did delayed entry did as well. I remember seeing some guys with the 82nd, <clears throat> excuse me, Airborne, 101st, and they already knew, well, after boot camp, I'm going to jump school, then I'm going to be assigned to Fort Bragg or Fort Benning or whatever. And that was the same case with me. I didn't want to go Airborne. I, I just wanted to do artillery. But I was already assigned to 1st Infantry Division pending my graduation. I remember getting 10 days leave and then reporting to Fort Riley in the winter of 81. And then when I got there, they assigned me to a specific uh, battalion. At that time, if memory serves me well, the 1st Infantry Division had four brigades, 
three of them were far right of Kansas. One of them was called Forward Brigade in Germany, down, I think, around maybe Mannheim, Wurzburg area. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong there, Ian. I don't know. But I'm not going to test you on it later. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I like these kind of things. I, I like to see, you know, oh, who is where? I find those things interesting. Yeah, yeah. But um, I was assigned to 1st Infantry Division Replacement Detachment, which is basically the reception center. Once you got there, you know, you get your paperwork, you get you know, more you know, your winter gear, blah, blah, blah. And then you go to this desk and they find out what your MOS is, which is basically your military occupational specialist. And your paperwork says, well, you're a 13 Bravo, you're artillery. Okay, so you're going to go to an artillery unit. And I went to Charlie Battery, 3rd Battalion, 6th Field Artillery, uh, which was part of the three brigades that made up the division of Fort Riley. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was my duty assignment. So I already knew pretty much. But like I said, a lot of guys, when they joined, it wasn't delayed entry. They just went in. They got their orders maybe a week before graduation. And, oh, I'm going to Germany. Oh, I'm going to Korea. And the guys with the patches, well, we already know where we're going to go unless we didn't graduate. Yeah. So a lot of that was predetermined that based on the agreement you made before you were enlisted. And my enlistment, I had a bonus. And if I pass, I'd get the bonus and I'd be assigned to, to Fort Raleigh. And why Fort Raleigh? I don't know. They gave me a few choices. And I remember one being Fort Raleigh, Kansas. And I just remember saying, as far away as California as I can get, you can get me. That's where I want to go. <laughs> so I'm surprised I didn't wind up in Korea or yeah. Turkey or Greece, but uh, I went to Fort Raleigh and, and I, I signed the papers in December of 80, like seven, eight months before I even went in. So that's how that worked at the time. Okay. And at this point, you weren't trained in artillery. You'd just gone through the basic training. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. It was called one station unit training. It was basically three months of boot camp. And if memory serves me well, artillery was towards the end of it. Kind of like the AIT. You know what that means, Ian? No, I don't. That's a AIT, like a specialized school, advanced individual training. Right. Uh, artillery and boot camp were meshed into like 12 weeks and you did all your training there and then included your specialty, which is artillery at about maybe the, maybe the eighth week we did all our basic, you know, rifle marksmanship, obstacle courses, um, NBC, nuclear chemical, biological. Mm-hmm. And then we started going into the artillery training and the introduction and the kind of artillery pieces we had. And I remember we did train on on two specific kinds of artillery pieces for four weeks. It was the M one ten, which was a it was called the eight inch, and that was basically a massive cannon that had no cover. It was like a cannon on wheels, basically. Yeah. And then also the M109, which was a 155 millimeter. And it looked more like a tank. It was self-propelled also. And that was covered. And then we also had, uh, it was either the M102 or M105, which is a smaller artillery piece. And that was a towed piece, which means, you know, that was hooked up behind the truck or it was airdropped. So I remember training in those three areas. And I remember just the the weight of some of those artillery rounds. Like, oh my God! I mean, I was seventeen. I was buffed because of that. But but the artillery rounds were were amazing. They started you off 
with familiarization. And then they got into map reading and calculating. In the old days, we had these maps with grids. And then you would do a little bit of basic math and put it into a, into a little piece of paper. And they'll give you your, let's see, quadrant and deflection. If I'm thinking correctly, quadrant was, uh, God, eleva- I'm sorry, elevation was up and down and quadrant was left and right. Mm-hmm. And then what they did is someone would give us mock coordinates and we'd be timed. We'd have to pull the cannon up, pull it down manually, by the way. Yeah. Not electronically. We didn't have that yet. Uh, I think the M110 and 155 did, but we still have to do that. And then with a whole section on the actual rounds, we basically trained with HE, high explosive rounds, but we also got to do loom rounds, and that was, ah. Uh, Beautiful, I guess. <laughs> what a, to see it blow up in the night sky. What a loom. Uh, oh, illumination, yeah, yeah, loom rounds. illumination rounds. Yeah. And, and then it would show us the different kind of rounds and the fuses and the timing on the fuses and the kind of fuses. You had, uh, you had the time on target. You could just the time. You had just the impact uh, fuses. So we got to do all that. And I remember we had to go through a cycle where you were broken up and you had to go through First of all, can you do the elevation? Can you do the? Can you set a fuse? Can you set actually put the fuse on the artillery piece? Can you identify the artillery around? What's the maximum distance? Um, we never trained with white phosphorus at boot camp or chemical rounds, obviously. But we did a lot of high explosive, and that was a big rush. I just remember pulling the lanyard, like towards the end, where you had to actually qualify to make your task, your graduation requirements, and part of it was you had to fire a live round. And and that was probably the biggest high, if you will, that a seventeen-year-old can have to pulling the lanyard on a a, a one a one five five millimeter round, having the impact and the recoil, and maybe thirty seconds later hearing an explosion or seeing it light up the sky late at night over Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Yeah. It was a, a head rush for a seventeen-year-old. Yeah. So at that time, you know, I'm happy. Uh, yeah. This is what I'm going to do for a while. <laughs> what was your role in in the artillery team, or, or was everybody interchangeable in in terms of their role? In, in boot camp, they trained you like it was assistant gunner, um, ammo, communication, RTO, radio tele, radio telephone operator, driver. Once you got to your unit, you were expected to know all parts of those roles. And when I got to my unit, I was an E1. And so I got assigned to ammo, <laughs> which means I had to work my way up. What you do in ammo is unload the round, basically. And you give them to the guys on the artillery pieces. And each battery, at least for a, an eight-inch battery back in those days, we had four artillery pieces per battery. And I was assigned to ammo which was I wasn't worthy to be on a gun yet. I had to prove myself. Mm. So I had to upload the rounds physically, unload them, put them on the tray, uh, take off the packaging, and then you would work your way up. Then I would be like an assistant where I actually took the artillery round and prepped it, you know, put the right fuse on it, make sure it's the right kind of round, and put it on a tray, which was hydraulically driven at the time. And now we're talking about the M110 which is a bigger piece. It's an eight inch round. 
And then you, if you proved yourself there or the sergeant liked you, then you worked your way up to uh, assistant gunner and then the actual guy who pulled the lanyard. The gunner itself was usually the sergeant or corporal or the section chief. That was more of a, a more highly trained uh, specialty. And I think that even required more training at a school. But that was for the higher-up NCOs. Right. So basically, you had to work your way up. But another thing to to keep in mind, in 1981, we were really short people. Uh, no one wanted to join the Army, at least from what I can recall. They had to give bonuses. And there was always a shortage. So you had to do multiple things. Like you load the round, and then I was just a gunner. And then since I was right next to the, the lanyard, I just pull the lanyard. Be the actual one that says battery, stand by, battery, fire, and then you pull the lanyard. So I remember having multiple jobs at one time. When when you finish that training, you're almost straight into a reforger exercise. That is correct. Um, I got to Fort Raleigh in November of 81, right before my 18th birthday. And like I told you just earlier, you had to go through the reception station and grab all your gear then you get assigned to your unit on base and Fort Riley at the time was massive it was like a little city there might have been I'm taking a guess maybe 14 15,000 troops there at the time plus their dependents and plus the civilian workers and uh, I remember reporting to my duty station and my my battery commander saying well you joined us at a good time we're just starting training for a reforger and of course, you know, I'm an E1, this is a captain. I, don't, I didn't even ask him what a reforger was until I got to my section chief and I said, what the heck's reforger? Uh, and he said, oh, it's return of forces Germany. You're not fun. Don't worry about it. So I said, okay. But as time went on, all the training revolved around that. We used to go to the field maybe five, six days out of the month. We'd be in garrison doing maintenance, you know, doing training, during classrooms. And then that would accumulate every month of going out to the field and doing live fire exercises. And I remember January of 82. Oh, my God. Keep in mind, I come from California. I'm in the middle of Kansas. And it was like 32 below zero with the wind chill factor. And <laughs> I had no idea why I chose to do that. But you couldn't say no. You couldn't back out. You had to be a yeah. man and suck it up. And uh, we trained. And the, the end goal the end result was getting ready for reforger, which wasn't until September of 82. So we started training for reforger in January, about eight, nine months. And under severe weather circumstances, you know, in Kansas, as you probably know, uh, maybe you don't know, but it's in the Midwest and it's very cold in the wintertime. And then in, in the springtime, you have the winds and tornadoes. And they actually called us back in from the field and we had a tornado in uh, the spring of 82. But outside of that, they didn't care if it's rain, snowed, or it was 100 degrees. Yeah. You trained. The only, and, the only reason it, I'm familiar with uh, Kansas and tornadoes is the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go, Ian. That's close enough. <laughs> yeah, I was in the land of Oz. It was pretty yeah. wild. Uh, but I, I also remember, as we got closer to Reforger, they kept changing the dates on us and when we would leave. Like... You ever heard the saying, hurry up and wait? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. I learned what that meant very quickly. We're supposed to leave on September, and please, I'm just making this one up, mm. but I know it was in September of 82. We're going to leave on September 1st. Okay, so we have a pre-inspection on the 31st. We have a pre-inspection 
from the division. And then we have, even before that, it keeps going farther down, like the brigade and the battalion and the batteries and the section. And we did that like for two weeks. We pack and unpack and we'd sit around and wait. And we're supposed to leave on September 1st. And then they changed it to September 3rd. Not just making that date up, but I know it was in September. And then they changed it again. We're the 7th. No, now we're leaving on the 6th. And I asked my, my section chief, why do they do that? I was like, oh, we're trying to throw off any kind of terrorist possibilities. So even back then, they were aware and conscious of terrorism acts. Right. So, so the, the whole training, the whole cycle, if you will, was to get ready for reforger. And reforger um, lasted for us, my God, must have been about a month and a half from September yeah. to maybe mid-October of 82. Okay. And, and boy, the, that's a whole different story there. And, and the, the terrorism acts that they were fearful of were in Germany or in, in the U.S.? More in Europe. Yeah. I mean, back in the 80s, that was very rare. But, but I remember my 60s telling me, yeah, well, we're trying to throw off the schedules. Like if we're all flying into Frankfurt, I knew that, Rhein-Main Air Base, and people were watching. So they want to throw off like the units that were coming in. That's the way I understood it. Mm. But I also remember once we got there, it was nonstop, like boom, 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 boom. You know, no time to even think. You just had to do what you're trained to do. Yeah. And what, what sort of planes did you fly out on? We flew out of Topeka, Kansas. And I don't remember. It was an Air Force plane. I, I don't recall the nomenclature or the number, but we sat backwards and we had the, the harnesses and, you know, the straps. It was the Air Force scene. I think, correct me again, Ian, maybe a C-5 something. I don't right. remember. Okay. No, I was just wondering whether they were civilian yeah. airliners that had been requisitioned well, well, or... Well, I flew both, actually. Uh, we went military and we flew into Rhein-Main, but first we stopped somewhere in northeastern Canada, Newfoundland, somewhere, to refuel, and then they let us stretch our legs, and it was dark already, and I think it was like maybe six in the afternoon, and I've never been to Canada either. I wanted to go out and look, oh, no, you're sitting on the base. No one goes anywhere. Yeah. Sit here and wait. And then we got back on. We refueled, and we flew into Run Mine. Now, after Reforger, this is interesting. We flew back on a 747. And it was, at the time, uh, an airline called uh, Pan Am. It, I'm sure it doesn't exist anymore. I know no, it doesn't it, exist anymore. It, it doesn't. No, I, I remember Pan Am. <laughs> yeah, it was a 747. And like, again, wow, I've never flown a 747. So that was a civilian flight. And we flew back to Kansas on a civilian flight. <laughs> and, you know, we had pretty stewardesses. And we got food. So it was a different environment. It was more like a party environment. Yeah. I don't remember if they didn't let us drink, but you know, you were going home. So that felt good. And, and when we got home, we got a few days off and I, I remember it being a, a civilian aircraft. So I never flew in a 747 before. So when, when you arrive at, at Rhine, Maine, um, <clears throat> what, what happened then? Were you s straight out and <laughs> sent to your, um, M110s or, or what happens?
Well, that's it for today's episode, but we have got more from Manuel. We will be talking in a further episode about his experiences on that Reforger exercise. Don't forget to visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there's links, videos and details of books that will help you discover more about today's episode. If you can't wait for our next episode, do visit the Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just go to our website, coldwarconversations.com and click on the Join the Conversation option. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information